It's Monday, April 23rd, and this is The Daily Dive. Over the weekend, President Donald Trump fired off a series of tweets on everything ranging from James Comey, the fake news media, Michael Cohen, a new Democratic lawsuit, and North Korea. We'll talk to Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, for more on this. We'll also talk to Rod Pyle. He is an author and space historian who's worked with NASA and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and also the Johnson Space Center. We'll talk about the latest probe that went into space, the TESS satellite, who's taking over for Kepler and looking for more planets in our solar system. This is The Daily Dive, where we jump in and explore the news impacting you and the world around you. Let's dive in. President Trump had a lot to tweet about this past weekend. Uh, He tweeted about James Comey, the fake news media, Michael Cohen, a new Democratic lawsuit. Some of his tweets said, North Korea has agreed to suspend all nuclear tests and close a major test site. This is very good news for North Korea and the world. Big progress. Look forward to our summit. He also tweeted, we're a long way off from conclusion on North Korea. Maybe things will work out and maybe they won't. Only time will tell. But the work I am doing now should have been done a long time ago. On a Democratic lawsuit, he said, so funny the Democrats have sued Republicans for winning. Now the Republicans counter and force them to turn over treasure trove of materials, including servers and emails. But the one thing that seemed to grab the president's ire the most was a New York Times article about his longtime lawyer, Michael Cohen. He said, the New York Times third-rate reporter Maggie Haberman, known as a crooked H. Flunky, who I didn't speak to and have nothing to do with, are going out of their way to destroy Michael Cohen and his relationship with me in the hope that he will flip. They use non-existent sources and a drunk, drugged-up loser who hates Michael, a fine person with a wonderful family. Michael is a businessman for his own account, lawyer who I have always liked and respected. Most people will flip if the government lets them out of trouble, even if it means lying or making up stories. Sorry, I don't see Michael doing that, despite the horrible witch hunt and the dishonest media. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson. She's a political reporter for Reuters. How are you doing, Ginger? Hi, thanks for having me. No problem. The New York Times puts out a story by uh, Maggie Haberman, uh, and they paint a portrait of Michael Cohen, uh, a man who's kind of so beaten up by the president that uh, it would be no surprise if he flips. Uh, and the president goes on later to, you know, on a tweet storm against Maggie Haberman, against the New York Times. What do we make of this uh, report? It is a report that paints Michael Cohen sort of as an abused uh, girlfriend that uh, he had this devotion to Donald Trump. He was loyal. He said he would take a bullet for the president. Um, but this idea that, like, he's been so mistreated by Donald Trump, the subject of so much abuse when he was in his employ, uh, that now, given the opportunity that maybe he'll flip on him, uh, Donald Trump doesn't seem to think so. He seems to think that uh, Michael Cohen will be faithful, and maybe those tweets he saw uh, from the president this weekend were... Uh, partly trying to tell the public that Michael Cohen would be faithful and partly maybe trying to tell Michael Cohen uh, he should be faithful. <laughs> so the FBI raided his office. They took a bunch of documents, uh, uh, partly we know related to the Stormy Daniels case. Do we have a sense of what kind of criminal action he might be involved in? So the first thing that we know is that when Michael Cohen said he paid Stormy Daniels, there's a lot of people think that that alone was a crime. Um, there's rules about campaign spending, that this was in the middle of a campaign, and that Michael Cohen as an attorney should have known better. Uh, and that there's like recent examples in history uh, where we've seen uh, this be a legal problem. John Edwards, 
his supporters paid a woman who he was having an affair with to sort of keep her quiet during his presidential election. It was a crime. They said he stood trial, um, but ultimately was not convicted of those things. So a lot of people think that just like on a, on a very basic level, when Michael Cohen said he paid Stormy Daniels, Michael Cohen said he committed a crime. And Donald Trump has sort of said um, that, you know, there should be attorney-client privilege, but we know attorney-client privilege doesn't apply when your lawyer is committing crimes for you. Right. This all comes out of the Mueller investigation, and, you know, he was authorized to go after anything he sees that comes up during his Russia collusion investigation. So if he sees illegal activity, he has to act on it. Um, but what's interesting is that he didn't act himself. He handed this off right. to the New York office and had them do the raid. So it's actually not Mueller doing this. And that could have been a really wise move on his part, because if he were to see something in the course of the raid that was protected by attorney-client privilege that he shouldn't see, uh, he could have his investigators uh, thrown out of the investigation. They would no longer be able to investigate because of that. And they're saying that uh, Mr. Cohen didn't really do much legal work for the president. They're instead focusing on a lot of uh, media kind of and real estate dealings that he was doing for him. So they're looking for some type of business tie to Russia or, or some other nefarious actors? I, they haven't overtly said that they were doing that, but I do think that that would be part of it. We also know that Cohn's previous business involved uh, working with the Ukrainians and the Russians, um, and that he has a history of working with them. And for that reason, uh, we already know he's got ties and seeing if those ties uh, extended to connect Donald Trump. And then we see, obviously, the president attacking The New York Times, Maggie Haberman. Um, she also was part of a team that was uh, just won the Pulitzer Prize for working on stories related to the Russia collusion. And the Pulitzer Prize people awarded them for deeply sourced, relentlessly reported coverage. Maggie Haberman isn't a, a slouch or anything, and she's not a nobody or a third-rate reporter, as the president said. Absolutely. And let me tell you, I have firsthand knowledge. Maggie and I were part of a team that covered the 2012 election together at Politico when we were both at Politico. I've worked alongside her on a daily basis. And let's be clear, the president does talk to her. He does give her almost more interviews than he's given anyone else in the White House press corps and talks to her off the record. In addition to that, we believe, we believe he's talking to her even more. Um, so this suggests that he doesn't talk to Maggie Haberman would be uh, absolutely incorrect. And do we have a sense of how this particular story with Michael Cohen is playing amongst Trump's supporters? Let's be clear. Donald Trump's supporters are not going to abandon him because of a Michael Cohen story. They might not even abandon him if Michael Cohen were to flip and say terrible things about the president. They think he's uh, blowing up the system. They think he's making the establishment uncomfortable. Uh, and he keeps telling them he's successful, and they believe that he is. What's in this new lawsuit that the DNC is uh, has filed against the Trump campaign and Russia There's and WikiLeaks? <laughs> This is a page right out of the Democratic Party's playbook from Watergate. Democrats think that the more days that the news and the public is talking about Russia and collusion, that it makes his supporters weary, that it makes maybe those people who are on the fence that may or may not support Donald Trump um, unhappy, and that that's going to help them in November. Uh, interestingly, it sort of prompted some internal backlash. There's some Democrats who didn't agree with this as a tactic and thought they were wasting time and money. Um, but it doesn't really seem to have much of a downside for the Democratic Party. The hack that released a bunch of the emails uh, kind of impacted during the conventions 
when everybody's supposed to be coming together for Hillary Clinton and uh, kind of expose some of those emails about Bernie Sanders. I was there at the convention. I could tell you that I saw a bunch of Bernie Sanders supporters, maybe even more than Hillary Clinton supporters, and everybody was all over the place. Uh, you know, so it did, definitely did cause some strife within the party. That's absolutely right. It's important to remember that the point of this hack and the point of the release was to sow divisions within the Democratic Party, to make Democrats be mad at one another, to blame one another, um, to reopen the wounds that had been sort of created during the primary. I mean, there's always wounds during a primary. That's what they do. Um, and most of the time, parties are able to sort of come together, reach an agreement, move on once they get into the general election. This was a direct effort to sort of rip that Band-Aid open, get that wound open, and cause more problems. And it succeeded. As you said, you know, there were people at the convention that were unhappy. There were people who were ready to litigate the primary again. There were people talking about Bernie being aggrieved. Uh, it worked. It absolutely right. worked, uh, what, what the Russians were trying to do when they released those emails. All right, Ginger, thank you very much. That's, uh, she's a political reporter for Reuters. You can catch her on Twitter, at Ginger Gibson. has successfully cleared the pad and is now on its ascent with the test spacecraft in its fairing. Joining us now is Rod Pyle. He's an author and a space historian. He's worked with NASA at uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's also worked at the Johnson Space Center. Thanks for joining us, Rod. Thanks for having me. And I also should add, I am the newly appointed editor of Ad Astra Magazine for the National Space Society. Just had to get my little commercial Oh, that's there. great. And, uh, yeah. and we can... Uh, Get all your books and everything at uh, pilebooks.com, right? Yes, sir. So we just had a new satellite launch last week. Took a ride on the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. It's the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, also known as TESS. Uh, what can you tell us about this? Very well done. Uh, TESS is a replacement for Kepler. So for people who remember Kepler and follow this stuff, the Kepler Space Telescope launched in 2009. And a big part of its mission was to investigate, search for, investigate, and confirm exoplanets, so planets in other solar systems, planets around other stars. And it did that very well for a few years, but uh, the gyroscopes, which are actually, they're called reaction wheels. They're the, the gyroscope type mechanisms that help steer the thing so you're not constantly using rocket fuel, started to go bad after a few years. And eventually it got so bad that they just had to park it more or less in one direction, have it stare at one patch of space for a very long time. But it's just about to run out of fuel in the next few months. They said, okay, we need to replace so a few years ago, they started working on TESS. So TESS will go up in a completely different orbit. It's got this weird big looping orbit that goes around the moon and the Earth. So it's a huge orbit. And uh, it will look at closer stars, but it will be able to map about 85% of the entire celestial sphere. So everything you can see if you're in space and look in all directions, it'll be able to do that. And it'll see bright stars. It'll see dim stars. It'll be able to look at red dwarfs, which are about 75% of the stars out there. Very, very good candidates for exoplanets, by the way. Right. They, they, and, gave, um, they gave Kepler credit for 2,600 discoveries. Um, so like well, you said, that this, has, this yeah. is going to have a, an 85% view of the sky. So, I mean, potentially it could blow those numbers out of the water. Yeah, I mean, the numbers are kind of all over the map, but they're saying maybe 20,000 exoplanets if the missions extended as long as, as they tend to be, which is often 10 years. 
So they expect to find maybe 500 to 1,000 new rocky exoplanets. So exoplanets come in a couple of varieties, just like they do in our solar system, big balls of gas like Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune, and then the rocky inner planets like Earth, Mars, Venus, and uh, Mercury. So the ones we're most interested in, we think they're all kind of cool, right? right? But the ones we're most interested in are the terrestrial or rocky planets, because those are the ones where we think we'll probably find signs of life eventually. So this is still all about finding life on other planets, uh, you know, answering those questions, are we alone and everything? Yeah, and it's finding elemental life. So with the SETI project, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence with radio telescopes and all that, we're looking for signals from intelligent life. We've kind of downgraded our expectations a bit. <laughs> and now we're saying, look, if there's microbes there, they're probably going to be metabolizing something. Let's look for that in the atmosphere. And at least we can find out if there's some kind of elemental life out there, if not other people making episodes of Star Trek, which we'd like to see. Briefly, back to that, the Falcon 9 rocket by SpaceX. Yeah. Uh, are these going to be the, the rockets of the near future? Are, are we building new ones constantly, or are we still trying to perfect these? I know... Uh, you know, they had that uh, successful boost rocket came back down and landed on the on the platform. And they've done that. I think it was the 24th successful uh, recovery of those. Is this still what we're going to be playing with for the near future? This and a couple of others. So there's a handful of companies that kind of control that market. There's SpaceX, which is the one we're most familiar with because they make the most, most news. There's another company that's been around for decades called the United Launch Alliance, and they're a combination of Boeing and Lockheed. And they have they launched the Atlas rocket, the Delta, which are kind of redesigned ICBMs from way back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and then there's a couple of smaller companies. So there's a number of outfits that are supplying rockets. What SpaceX is doing different than everybody else, as you know, is bringing them back, landing them, and recycling them. So, yeah, we're going to see a lot more SpaceX launches coming up. Probably roughly half the, the launches in the U.S. will go to SpaceX, if not a little more. Another thing, uh, NASA has plans for a galactic GPS. What is this about? Yeah, this is cool. So we all know how G GPS works. You know, you're in your car, you pick up your smartphone, you, you ping a location, and it says, okay, here are the steps to get there. It does that by triangulating the signals from multiple satellites, which are sending out basically a time pulse, beep, 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 to let you know where they are and what the timing is. And then you track that and triangulate between them and figure out where you are and where you got to be. And it works really well. Um, we don't have satellites way out in deep space, but if you're going to, let's say you want to send a spacecraft to uh, an unmanned spacecraft out to Pluto, you got to get, you got to hit that planet, which is 4.7 billion miles away at just the right spot to get into orbit, or you're going to go past it. And that's why in the early days and recently with Pluto, we did flybys because going into orbit is hard for a bunch of reasons. But one of those reasons is you got to be very, very accurate in how you get there. Well, if you had a navigation system that didn't have to take four and a half hours of a radio signal back to Earth and four and a half hours back out, you'd be in much better shape. So some very smart people got together and built an experiment that looks at pulsars, which are collapsed stars all over the galaxy, um, that blink these signals. Uh, they're, they're in the electromagnetic spectrum. A lot of them are X-rays. And these are stars that have completely collapsed from a supernova. So even the atoms are crunched down. So they're just neutrons now. So they're incredibly massive. They spin really fast. And they send out these pulses of light, effectively, in many cases, in milliseconds, because they're spinning that fast. It's hard to imagine. And if you could track those pulses on three or more pulsars, then you can use those like GPS satellites to figure out where in deep space you are. The last thing I wanted to ask you, as luck would have it, you know, the day that we're trying to launch a brand new podcast, I'm getting word that it might also be uh, doomsday and the end of the world again. 
Uh, <laughs> the rapture um, is coming. Right. <laughs> Run and hide. Yeah. So this is a, a another planet X that is supposed to be destroying Earth sometime today. Yeah, well, kind of. It's 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 this mythical planet nine or planet X, depending on what name you use. They call it Nibiru, which is the name of I think some some nasty wicked ancient deity. And uh, this is a, a, a myth that's been going on for a long time. You know, at one point people were talking about, oh, there's a planet just like ours on the other side of the sun that we never see. Well, we've sent spacecraft out far enough they would have seen it, and they didn't. If anything was going to come in and make an orbital pass anywhere near Earth or the sun, which is what they're talking about, we'd know about it, and it's not. So, no, we're not going to have a swing by of Nibiru, unfortunately, because that would be pretty exciting. Well, fortunately for us, like I said, debut of the podcast, where uh, we were hoping that you'd give us that good news. Uh, well, on the other hand, if I gave you the news that it was going to happen, think of the ratings. That's true. The last cast on the Earth. The first and last <laughs> podcast to mention the Bureau, but right. yeah, sorry. Rod, thank you for joining us. Uh, you can check out all his stuff at pilebooks.com. Right, pylebooks.com. I'm Oscar Ramirez. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sarantino. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and you can catch us on Facebook at Daily Dive Podcast. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Remember, sharing is caring. And if you liked what you heard today, please tell a friend. I'm Oscar Ramirez reporting out of Los Angeles, and this is your Daily Dive. <laughs>